This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Beginning in verse 1, we'll read 1 through 7, but as we're going through these opening verses uh, pretty closely, just because there's so much there, we'll concentrate our attention this morning, our study on verse 5, but we'll begin by reading verses 1 through 7. Hear the word of God. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 5, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. Let's pray. Lord God, we turn to your word hungry. Pray that you would feed us. Lord, we turn to your word in need of instruction, and we pray that you would teach us. Lord, we turn to your word in need of you and pray that as we study your word, that you would meet with us, and Lord, that we would worship you in the contemplation of this truth. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Verses 1 through 7, uh, as we know them, of course, Paul didn't put verse numbers in. Uh, those were added much later. But as we know them, was one sentence as Paul wrote it. Now, as you read it, uh, even in English, you get a sense that there's sort of a, a build to a climax in verse 4. Paul starts out talking about himself in verse 1 and then moves on to talking about uh, the Son of God, and then at the end of verse 4, names him, Jesus Christ our Lord. It would have been a very good place to stop. But as many preachers are prone to do, Paul did not stop, but he kept on going. Uh, because having discussed who Christ is, he now wants to talk just a little bit, a few words, about his ministry, which is what he gives to us here in verse 5. Uh, he wrote a little bit about the gospel, a little bit about the one to whom it points. And now he gives us just a few words by way of introduction concerning his own work. Now, in other places, Paul goes on at, at considerable length. We think of his Second Corinthians, for instance. Paul talks a great deal about his own ministry. But here in just a few words, he gives us a sense of his own work and his own ministry. And while it is just one verse, what he writes here is very important uh, and, and, and very much like all of these verses, very much packed. With, tr- with truth. So what we want to do is just uh, is look at this verse and think about what he's saying here. Well, in the first place, Paul talks about the authority of his apostleship, the authority of his apostleship. What right does he have 
to say the kinds of things that he says to the church in Rome. He didn't plant the church. Many of these people he doesn't know. What right does he have to say the kinds of things and to teach the kinds of things that he teaches to them, and as these things are in Scripture, therefore, to us? What is his authority? Well, he tells us here. He says the authority that he has to do this is from Christ. Notice in verse 5, he says, through whom? Uh, something, uh, again, a relative pronoun. What's it relative to? What's it pointing to? Well, back to the end of verse 4, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship. Now, it's important for Paul to say that because uh, perhaps now and later there would be those who challenged his authority who challenged his standing as an apostle. Where was he, after all, when Jesus was walking on the earth? He wasn't one of those 12 that was, that was following him. He wasn't one of those who uh, was a witness, at least in the way the 12 were, to, the, to the, the teaching and the miracles and the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, who was it who, who, who takes this authority on himself? Uh, there were false apostles as well who were challenging Paul and you know, remember how Paul writes to the church in Corinth, you know, we don't need letters of commendation. You are our letter of commendation, what God has done in you and is doing in you. And so Paul does want to just briefly here assert that he has the authority to write the things that he is saying. It comes from Christ himself. We know that. Three times the book of Acts uh, records his conversion when Christ meets him on the road in chapter 9 when it actually happens, and then twice again as Paul retells it. So uh, it's from Christ. Whether he was one of the original 12 or not, the fact is Christ has appointed him an apostle. That's all the authority he needs. And, and he was a witness of the resurrection of Christ by virtue of the fact that Jesus appeared to him later. Paul recognizes it wasn't quite the normal route. Uh, he describes himself as one born out of due time. Uh, Nevertheless, he was appointed an apostle by Christ. Now, he's very quick to point out this was by grace. He says, through whom we have received grace and apostleship. Now, those could be two separate things. We received grace, we received apostleship. The construction also uh, could lend itself to his basically saying we, received, we very graciously received this apostleship. We received the grace of apostleship. Either way you take it, it's loaded with grace. Paul's recognizing that there's nothing in him uh, that he should be saved or that he should be an apostle. Certainly if it's grace pointing to salvation, uh, remember what Paul says to Timothy, 1 Timothy 1, verses 15 and 16. He says, this saying is trustworthy, deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. False modesty? Hardly. This was a man who had the blood of Christians on his hands, literally and figuratively. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, as the worst of all sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul is saying, Jesus saved me to assure people if he can save me, he can save anybody. Because I'm the chief of sinners. I'm the foremost. I'm the worst of sinners. And it's an example, Paul says. It, it, certainly his salvation was by grace. 
But his, this, his apostleship was as well, that he should have this position of authority, this position of leadership in the church. He fully recognized that, humanly speaking, he had no claim to it whatsoever, that it was by grace that he held this. And that same passage in 1 Timothy 1, in fact, just before the verses we just read, here in verses 12, and four, 12 through 14, he says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, the exact phrase, by the way, uh, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So whether he's talking about his salvation or talking about his office as an apostle, he recognizes that it is grace through and through. There's nothing in him that he should deserve this. And he wants to make that clear even as he asserts his authority, his apostleship. He recognizes and readily acknowledges that it is strictly by grace, completely undeserved, but very real because it was given to him by Christ himself. Now, that's the authority of it. Uh, It's from Christ, totally by grace. What's the purpose of it? He goes on in the rest of this verse to tell us not just the purpose, but purposes. Why did Christ give him this position? Was it so he could lord it over others? Was it so he could say for all eternity, well, I, you know, I was an apostle. I was one of them. No, that wasn't the purpose of it. There were several purposes that Paul names here that he, he lists for us here. The first purpose of this apostleship that he received was to reach people for Christ. To reach people for Christ. Notice what he says in verse 5. To bring about the obedience of faith. To bring about the obedience of faith. Now, we need to note before we talk about that phrase that the exact same phrase occurs at the very end of Romans. So go to Romans 16. Normally, we don't look at the end of a book before we get there, but you've probably read the end anyway, and it's okay. But it's worth noting that Paul begins Romans, and he ends Romans with the same phrase. Notice what he says. It ends with this doxology. Verse 25. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the case, sounds very similar to the introduction, doesn't it? According to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Sort of ends where he started. You know, it's kind of like bookends. We talk about obedience to the, uh, the obedience of faith. We end by talking about the obedience of faith. Question is, what is the obedience of faith? What is it? Uh, several different ways of understanding that statement. Uh, probably out of, out of the, the also rands, I would say in my own understanding of it, would be obedience to the faith. In other words, the, the teaching, the doctrines. I would say there are probably two uh, main ways of understanding it that our translations would reflect. One is the obedience that arises out of faith. And that's very appropriate, especially if Paul is contrasting obedience that arises out of legalism, just obeying the, trying to obey the law, 
versus the obedience that comes through faith in Christ. And that is certainly one way of understanding. I think the, the NIV, I think, renders that way, it renders it that way as uh, do some other translations. And that's a legitimate way to understand it. The obedience that comes from faith, that arises out of faith. A second way to understand it, of the two main ways of understanding it, is not so much the obedience that arises out of faith in Christ, but the obedience that itself is faith in Christ. In other words, the obedience that consists in faith in Christ. Faith itself is the act of obedience to the gospel. I will tell you, I tentatively favor that translation, that understanding of it, um, because it seems to fit with what Paul's talking about in Romans, that, that, we're, that salvation is by grace through faith. And while he does talk, especially in chapter 6, about the obedience that grows out of our faith, uh, it seems to me he's talking about the gospel comes and we obey it by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, he speaks of it that way in other places. Later on in Romans, Romans chapter 10, verse 16, uh, he points out the gospel calls us to obey it. This is what he says, Romans 10, 16. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. Interesting language. We typically would think they've not believed the gospel. He says they have not obeyed the gospel. In other words, if you look back at Romans 1.5, they have not exercised that obedience of believing, that obedience that is faith. 2 Thessalonians 1.8, again, Paul, uh, he says, he's talking about judgment, he says, inflaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. So clearly in Romans, in Second Thessalonians, Paul uses that expression to obey the gospel. He thinks of the gospel as something to obey. How do we obey it? By believing, by faith. In fact, Jesus himself in John chapter 6, verses 27 through 29, feeding of the 5,000, that great uh, discourse, sermon of Jesus in John 6, this is what he says. People are wanting, following Jesus, and he gives them bread, they follow him. Jesus says, do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. And they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Now, Jesus is answering their question that way. They say, well, what, what work do we have to do? Well, Jesus is using their term, work, to say the work God calls you to do is to believe in his son. Now, that's not something that gains merit for us. Uh, second, as Ephesians chapter 2, 8, 9 says, uh, you've been saved by grace through faith, and this is not of yourself. That whole salvation and even the faith that, that receives it is a gift of God. Jesus isn't saying this is some work we do that gains God's favor. But to use their term, what work must we do? He says, well, this is the work God requires you to do, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how you obey the gospel. Which, by the way, I think that needs to influence a little bit how we think of the gospel. Too often we think of the gospel as something we put out there and somebody can consider it, think about it. Maybe they'll accept it. Maybe they won't. You know, try God. See if he doesn't work for you. That's not at all the biblical understanding of the gospel. In fact, the gospel comes to us this way. It's something that it commands us to obey. Here's how Paul puts it in Acts chapter 17. He's speaking you know, in the Areopagus, Mars Hill, to all the people who are there. And this is what he says. The times of ignorance God overlooked, 
but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. That doesn't sound like tossing it out there and you can think about it and take it or leave it. God overlooked your disobedience because of your ignorance, but now, now that the gospel is here, now that Christ has come, now that the gospel is being proclaimed, he commands all people everywhere to repent. Why? Because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. He commands all people everywhere to repent, to obey the command to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, I would submit to you, is the obedience that is faith. Now, I say I hold that tentatively because you could take it either way. And in fact, they're not mutually exclusive, are they? I mean, those words almost key off of each other. We obey the gospel by believing in Christ, but believing in Christ, then there is an obedience that arises out of faith. And if there is not an obedience that arises out of that faith in Christ, you have to go back and say, is that genuine, God-given, saving faith in Christ? Uh, which in turn drives us back uh, to faith. You know, we co- It's not something we do just once. We go back and believe in Christ every day, trusting in him. And we go to him confessing our sins, trusting in him, forgive us, save us. So it's almost like it's it's something circular. We obey by believing, but then believing we obey. And when we disobey, it drives us back and reminds us that we're saved by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So they're not mutually exclusive, really. They're sort of intertwined. And you can't separate them. You know, the gospel is not just obedience out of self-control. You know, hunker down, try harder. That's legalism. Neither is, is the gospel just something we believe that has nothing to do with how we live. Go on living in our own sinful ways. That's antinomianism, lawlessness. But it's both. We obey the gospel by believing it. That belief gives rise to obedience to Christ. This total, unreserved, lifelong commitment to Jesus. The obedience of faith. That's what Paul says he is about. His first purpose is to reach people for Christ. To bring them to this obedience of faith. Second purpose. Purpose two, Paul says, of my apostleship, not only reach people for Christ, it's to bring glory to Christ, to bring glory to Christ. Notice he says that he does what he does for the sake of his name. In other words, Paul is saying really reaching people for Christ is not the highest goal. It is a goal. It is the first purpose he mentions. But it is all done for the sake of the name of Christ. You know, there's a a fascinating passage. If you go back to Ezekiel, it's Ezekiel 36, and it occurs several times. In verse 22, verse 32, verse 36, God is talking about how he's going to show grace to his people. But notice why. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it's not for your sake, O house of Israel, I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. He says, it's not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. Again, he says, then the nations that are left all around you shall know that I am the Lord. I have rebuilt the ruined places and replanted that which was desolate. I am the Lord. I've spoken and I will do it. In other words, God's saying to you, I'm going to act. I'm going to act for your salvation, but don't think it's so much on account of you. You're just, you've just been very sinful. 
But it is for the sake of my name. It is for the glory and the honor of my name among the nations that they will know that I am the Lord. Notice what Paul says. To bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name. I remember reading John Piper's book, Let the Nations Be Glad. Good book. Commend it to you. It's a, it's a kind of a theology of missions. And he talks about why missions? What's the, what's the primary goal of missions? Well, yes, obviously it's to reach people for Christ. It's to plant new churches. It's to see people come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. But ultimately, the purpose of missions is the glory of God. It's the fame of his name, the honor of his name. Because there are people out there who are not giving God the glory and worship that is rightfully his, and they should be doing so. And we are jealous for the honor of the name of God, and we want them to worship God because he is worthy of their worship just as he is worthy of our worship. He, Piper addresses this problem. You know, I don't, I don't feel a whole lot of compassion for the people over there. I don't know them. I don't know people on the other side of the world. You know, I know I should feel sorry for them, should really feel compassion for them, but he said, you know, that may or may not be a motive, but you should feel passion for the name of God and the honor of his name. And that people here and on the other side of the world should be worshiping him. And let that be your motivation. Well, notice what Paul says. To bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name. See, Paul's purpose was to reach people for Christ, but it was also to bring glory to Christ. And there's a third purpose he mentions here as well. And that is, to, along with it, to spread the kingdom of Christ, not just to bring people to Jesus here, but to make his name known farther and farther. He says, to all the nations, among all the nations. Now, nations can just refer to you know, geographical entities, political states. But for Paul, particularly as he was called to be the apostle to the Gentiles, uh, he sees his calling as expanding the kingdom out into the Gentile nations, which is important, as we'll see in Romans, because Paul wanted uh, to come to Rome. He wanted to gather support there and use Rome as a, as a base, as a springboard for his mission to Spain, which falls under all the nations. So we see Paul's purposes here. One is to reach, this apostleship was given to him to reach people for Christ, to bring glory to Christ, and to expand and spread the kingdom of Christ to all the nations. So Paul says, that's, that's what I'm about. Uh, I have this apostleship, I have this authority that goes with it, but it's nothing in me, it's strictly by the grace uh, of God. And these are the purposes, this is what I'm about. Well, let's look at ourselves a little bit the way Paul looks at himself here. Do you see yourself as a Christian? Uh, and then in whatever roles God has put you in as a Christian husband or wife, father, uh, children, teacher, Sunday school teacher, uh, elder, deacon, whatever office God has called you to inside or outside of the church, do you see that as, uh, and especially your salvation, as a product of his grace? You, know, you may not have been a persecutor of Christians, but we're all sinners. None of us deserves what we've been given by God. It really is all of grace. Well, if you understand that, it does several things in you. First, it humbles you. How could it not? When you have this attitude that all that I have, I have received by the goodness and mercy of God, it does humble you. It can't help. 
And when it humbles you, a second thing that it does is it removes boasting. Outwardly, but even inwardly. And that can be a problem. That, that's a, a reflection of self-righteousness. In fact, it's, it really is just a manifestation of self-righteousness, of thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to. Therefore, we look down on others who don't seem to meet whatever standard that we applaud ourselves for. So it does. It removes boasting. And Paul talks about that in his letters. Uh, In fact, Paul says, I'm not going to boast of my strength. I'm going to boast, if I'm going to boast of anything, I'm going to boast of my weaknesses because that's where God shows his strength. That's where God shows his power. That's where God is seen in my weaknesses. That's what I'm going to boast about, Paul says. So it humbles us and therefore it removes any sense of of boastful pride, self-righteousness, whether expressed outwardly or thought. Inwardly, it removes smugness. Therefore, it tends to, in the third place, make you much more patient much more compassionate, much more gracious toward others around you in their weakness, in their frailties, and in their sins. Jesus was a friend of sinners. They were drawn to him. Why? Because he loved them. Because he looked on them and felt compassion for them. It was the self-righteous leaders that he, he rebuked and condemned In the strongest terms, it wasn't the woman caught in adultery. It wasn't the people who were weighed down by their guilt and their sins and the impossibility of the self-righteousness of the Pharisees. You see, if anybody had the right to be proud, it was Jesus. And yet there was humility. There was love. There was compassion for people because he saw the effects of their sins far more clearly than you and I do. And so it humbles us, which removes any sense of self-righteous boasting or pride or smugness, which generates a higher degree of patience and compassion for others around us, people we know, people we may not know, in their sin, because we've been humbled by the grace of God. And along with that, the fourth effect that it tends to have is to make you want others to have what you have in Christ. That compassion should lead you to say, I really want them to have Christ. I want them to have that sense of forgiveness. I want them to have that relationship with God that they need to have, but that they don't have. And it, it, it gives you uh, that motivation of compassion for them, along with the desire for the fame of, of the name of Christ uh, that moves you to seek opportunities to tell them of Jesus and to speak to them of what he's done for you. Speaking of which, all of us, as Christians, certainly along with Paul as an apostle, but all of us as Christians in the church have a role to play, as he says here in his purposes, in bringing people to Christ. As he goes on to say, in, in bringing glory to his name, in spreading his kingdom throughout the nations, we all have a role to play in that one way or another. To bring about, as he says, the obedience of faith until the knowledge of the Lord covers the earth. The waters cover the sea. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for these words. In this one verse, Lord, that that spell out so much about Paul's own ministry. Father, we pray that these things, uh, Lord, not apostleship, but uh, your callings on us nevertheless in other ways, that these things would be true of us. Lord, above all, humble us with the gospel. Lord, give us a great sense of your overwhelming 
grace. And Lord, we pray that our lives would reflect the obedience of faith of which Paul speaks here. We pray it in Christ's name for his glory. Amen.